A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber, and this episode has been generously sponsored by the Fisher family of Worcester, Massachusetts, in memory of the Ziff Fisher and Bartfield families from Worcester, Massachusetts, who came to the United States in 1904 and were pillars of the community until the passing of Mrs. Leba Fisher in 2016. Their extended families were on the forefront of all of what the small out-of-town Jewish community issues, from kashras to education to daily spiritual life needs. And um, we'll get a little bit into the whole story of Worcester, and hopefully of nearby Boston as well. Um, just had a quick uh, letter, which I found humorous, um, which I want to share with you. And the letter says, I'm sure you're familiar with the filler word concept, such as um, you know, like, etc. I think your filler word is, but we'll have to get to that story a different time. So that's uh, okay. Enough. That, yeah, I guess that's a compliment because there's so many stories that we still have to get to, and we always have to get to. And of course, um, looking forward to getting to all those stories one day. And and uh, and if you want to sponsor any of those stories, then and that's probably another filler word. Also, the sponsorships. So you can be in touch with me about that. Yehuda at yehudigeber.com. dot uh, com. Sponsorships and lectures, and hopefully tours. We're starting tours soon this summer. As well, finally getting back, uh, if I can re- remember how to get to the airport and what a plane looks like, then we'll be starting tours soon as well. Of course, today is also one of the most historic days of the Jewish calendar. It's Yom HaShoah. It's the holo- National Holocaust Day in Israel. Very special and important and powerful day uh, about Holocaust and Holocaust memory. And of course, that's why we're talking about Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, not the Holocaust, but you know. That's that's the circumstances, and um, we'll hopefully get to get another chance to talk about the Holocaust. But there are many episodes on Jewish history soundbites devoted to the Holocaust and Holocaust memory, so you may want to check those out in honor of Yom HaShoah. This episode is about Worcester, Massachusetts, Boston, Jews in general in Massachusetts, um, and uh, it's obviously too vast of a topic to cover in uh, one part. Because um, primarily I'm going to focus on Worcester, and I'll get to Boston uh, as well. Um, 
And there will definitely also be a part two uh, more about uh, Boston because there's so much. So be in touch with me about sponsoring part two. Also for any other cities uh, in this series where this is a launching of season two of the Great American uh, Jewish Cities uh, series, which was very, very successful last year throughout the spring and summer and looking forward to another exciting season of it. And are proud that uh, Worcester and Boston uh, get to be the launch get to be uh, the first part of this new season in um, in the city series that we're going to have. Um, I thought when I speak about Boston, thought that the main history in Boston was the Freedom Ride or Lexington and Concord or the Boston Tea Party or if you want to go a different uh, direction than Fenway Park. But apparently there's Jewish history there as well. And a lot of it, and a very interesting one. So it'll be very interesting to get into Massachusetts, which is such a historical place uh, as it is, um, and uh, to examine the Jewish aspect of it. I also have a personal connection there, and my childhood, we had family in Boston, and we used to go um, once a year. We'd go for several days up to Boston, and we did all the history stuff there, and all the fun things there, and you know, a great city, and I love the place. Always had a uh, a great spot for for uh, Boston because of that. So it's uh, nice to get to go back to visit through this episode. If you tell someone the Bostoner, it uh, depends on which circles you're from. You could be referring to all kinds of historical figures. You could be referring to the Bostoner Rebbe, the great Hasidic Rebbe. The Bostoner also might mean Rav Salvechik because he was the Rav there. Some people might think you're talking about Larry Bird. So it really depends on who you're talking to, and uh, and there's a lot of connotations and associations that come with the city. Uh, Boston is unique in many ways. It's it's out of town, but it's a port city on the old northeast, so it's not really out of town. It's a historical place, like I mentioned, and specifically in the Jewish sense, it has quite a few firsts in American Jewish history, and it's also unique as it's one of the places in which uh, the establishment Jewish community, in historically, which was established, was not the German Jewish reform uh, Jews who immigrated in the mid-19th century. It wasn't even so much the early Sephardic communities, although there was uh, some presence there early on. They didn't really have much of a stronghold either, but really the Jewish history came um, with the Orthodox Eastern European Jews. So ironically, a such an old historic city, but the Jewish presence there, especially a large presence there, uh, only started much later. So we will get back to Boston soon. Right now I want to focus on Worcester. And the most important thing about Worcester is how it's pronounced. Okay? Go figure, a, a city that's spelled W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R is spelled, is pronounced Worcester, Worcester, really, or Worcester, Worcester, however it is. And, uh, and, um, you know, I, I spent more time trying to figure out and researching why it's pronounced that way and how's the correct way to pronounce it than actual research on the Jewish community there. Um, Apparently, it has something to do with what it's named after in England, um, but uh, doesn't seem like it justifies uh, making everyone crazy about the pronunciation. 
Um, so it's in the middle of Massachusetts, west of Boston. It's actually the second largest city in the state. And throughout Massachusetts, there were many small Jewish communities which dotted the Massachusetts landscape in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and Worcester was one of the largest uh, of those. In the late 1800s, there was a Jewish community established in the 1870s, um, and they got lands for a cemetery, and they were able to build a shul, and, and like many Jewish communities, actually, it's interesting, in many ways, the story of the Worcester Jewish community is somewhat typical of many of the out-of-town Jewish communities uh, uh, throughout the American landscape in the 20th century. Um, at the peak, the Worcester Jewish community had 13 shuls on the old east side of the city, until the eventually the Jewish community shifted over to the west side, and uh, there were Orthodox shuls, uh, many from the immigrants which came in the late 1800s. Um, it all had very uh, immigrant uh, type of names, Anshe Svard and, and Tzemach Tzedek and, uh, and, and all kinds named after different towns in Eastern Europe. Um, so it was a real, uh, kind of like a Haimisha atmosphere. Though there was in the early 20th century, there's also the other denominations of, of American Judaism had established there also and, and soon outnumbered the Orthodox. There was a reform temple, Temple Emmanuel, which was built in, in 1921. It soon became the largest, by far, the largest, almost 50% of Worcester Jews belonged to Temple Emmanuel at one point. Um, so it became, it was, it was almost one of, it was one of the largest reformed temples in the entire United States at mid-century at 1300 families. Talking about a very large uh, presence. Um, and, and if that was half of the community, so you're talking about a fairly large Jewish community. It's about 2,500, uh, 26, 2,700, uh, Jewish families living at mid-century in, in, in Worcester. Uh, there were other, uh, other reformed temples as well. There's Temple Sinai. Eventually they merged. Um, in fact, one of the personalities I'm going to get to, a famous uh, counterculture hero, Abby Hoffman, his funeral was at the Temple Emmanuel. I'm going to talk about him hopefully soon, a fascinating personality. But uh, I want to go in order first of of, uh, of the community and the institutions and then later to individuals. So we'll get back to Abby uh, soon. Um, conservative. There was a conservative uh, temple, conservative synagogue. Uh, Beth Israel was actually founded as an Orthodox synagogue in 1924. And in a move reminiscent of many of the places around the country at the time, it switched over from Orthodox to conservative in the late 1940s, which was happening all over the country. So very, very stereotypical of what was happening throughout the United States took place uh, here as well. There was many Orthodox jewels, like I said. One of the main ones was a place called Sharei Torah, and they eventually opened up a West Side branch by buying the old Beth Israel's uh, building in a funny full circle there that it became uh, Orthodox again. So there was, um, you know, quite a few shuls around. There's uh, uh, there some, some a, a very strong, specifically a very strong Chabad presence, a Lubavitch presence in Worcester throughout the 20th century. And I'm not going to cover the whole. Uh, the whole story, because it's, it's it's quite a few amazing personalities, but just a few of the important ones, prominent ones. Uh, Reb Zarah Horvitz, who came very early on, 1903. Um, there was a, a shul called Tzemach Tzedek Anshe Smolyan in Worcester. And they invited, um, who came, Reb Zarah was, was from that area, 
they invited him to come serve as their rabbi. So 1903, it's the beginning, the dawn of the century. He was very close with the Rayats, with the Friedeke Rebbe. He was one of the founders of Agudas Hasidi Chabad, um, which, uh, you know, and he, um, he, uh, he, he, Sorry, he came much. He came came a few years later. Uh, he came. Uh, he, sorry, so so he, he was part of the committee that invited. Sorry, got mixed up there. My notes just fooling me here. And uh, he they involved in getting the rayats, the Friedrich Rebbe, when his visit to the United States in 1929. So Rabbi uh, Horowitz was involved in that endeavor. He was a he, tremendous Talmud Chacham, known as a diligent masmid, a, a something from a different era in that early years of uh, of the United States out in in Worcester. And he helped open the Achit Tamim Yeshiva in Worcester in 1942, which uh, unfortunately passed away in in a tragic accident. Um, and uh, he wasn't the only one. He wasn't the only one uh, who was there from Lubavitch in those early years. There was a, another fellow named Reb Herschel Fogelman, who was sent there by the Friedrich Rebbe also. And he was a builder of Torah for many years. He was uh, in charge of the Teferis Yisrael Shul, which was a Chabad Shul that he was he was the rabbi in. He um, His son continues, again, for many years, Reb Mendel Fogelman as the Shliach there, uh, there was another. There's another man still till t- 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 today. Another fellow named Reb Chaim Fishman, uh, builder in the community. Uh, there's many, ma- many, many more names. Uh, there was a Chabad day school that was very prominent, very active for many decades, and a Chabad yeshiva, the Achit which I mentioned, was open in 1942. And again, for that early time, it had 60 to 70 students out in Massachusetts. There was a guy, a fellow named Reb Moshe Hecht, who was a Rosh Hashiva for a time. It seems to have been one of the earliest and one of the most successful Lubavitch yeshivas in the United States at that time, and one of the first successful out-of-town yeshivas altogether. Um, so it was a real center of Chabad, a real center of Lubavitch, with some impressive rabbis and leadership and institutions uh, for that time. Um, uh, like I mentioned, um, and they developed, they developed uh, the post-war and continued with various different other rabbis who were there and active and building up through the yeshiva and the day school and uh, the community at large. Um, a couple of the other famous individuals who happened to have lived in Worcester over the years, I mentioned Abby Hoffman. Um, he was a, a in, in general, Jews in the counterculture movement in the hippies in the 1960s. It's a, a fascinating story, and Hoffman is a perfect example of that. He was born in 1936, so he kind of beat out the baby boom generation by a decade, uh, but he did grow up in a middle-class, secular home, um, in the suburbs, in a place like uh, Worcester, uh, rebellious from the beginning. He was in between the beatnik and hippie generations. He was one of the founders of the yippies, so in between the beatniks and the hippies or the yippies. Um, but uh, we'll have to talk about that more whenever we get to the counterculture movement. Um, a very provocative. He attended Brandeis, which was you know sort of local for him, and then went to Berkeley, which was the center of, of of the counterculture in the Bay Area. And he was involved in the civil rights movement and the leader in the anti-Vietnam War protest movement. Arrested many times, he was very public, very outspoken, um, very much one of those uh, dominant uh, leaders of the student movement. Uh, um, you know, and uh, very proud of that role. Also, eventually died of, uh, it was a suicide of a drug overdose in 1989, um, and his funeral was in Temple Emanuel, back in his hometown in in Worcester. 
Um, so, but if we're talking about Jewish radicals, so another Jewish radical in an earlier generation was a lady by the name of Emma Goldman. And this woman was a fascinating woman. Uh, she was an anarchist. She, she came from Kovna, from an Orthodox family in Lithuania. And uh, eventually, because of that, because she was born outside the United States, eventually when, when the government had enough of her, so they deported her back to Russia, a whole bunch of stories. And, and, uh, and uh, she was a feminist and an anarchist and very active and all kinds of positions at the turn of the century, talking about much earlier. Um, but she did own an ice cream parlor in Worcester uh, for a period of time. Uh, so that's her connection to the town. There was another, another uh, writer, uh, a fellow by the name of Samuel Nathaniel Berman, S.N. Berman. And uh, he was a playwright, a prominent writer for The New Yorker for many years. He grew up in an Orthodox home in Worcester. His parents were immigrants from Lithuania who spoke to him in Yiddish. His father was a Talmud Chacham. His, he, in one of his articles in The New Yorker, he has a long, long detailed article where he describes his uncle Harry's, also a very, you know, a scholar, a Talmudic scholar, a very religious Jew who he married the daughter of Ramesha Zvulun Margolis, the Ramaz, in Boston. In a, in, in a town next door, and in there he describes Jewish life in the town, and uh, and in, in many of his writings he uh, he describes the Jewish life in Worcester during the uh, early decades of the twentieth century. So it's also an interesting uh, read. Um, he himself fell in love with theater at a young age. He left home, he left Orthodoxy, and became a very prominent uh, playwright in the New York scene. Um, so that's another. Uh, Worcester story. Um, interestingly enough, Clark University, uh, which is a prominent university in Worcester, became, here's the Yom HaShoah connection. We talked about that it's Yom HaShoah. So here we have one. The first chair of Holocaust studies in the United States, and the only one for a long time, uh, is uh, was in Clark University, where you could study Holocaust studies and genocide and get a doctorate, a PhD, is was in is was in Clark University, uh, so it's a prominent place in Jewish uh, in Jewish history. Is for is for Clark University because of that, and also it serves as the as the host in 1909. And Sigmund Freud's only visit to the United States uh, was a series of lectures, the Clark lectures, a series of five or six lectures, I think, uh, at uh, was what he, what he did at, at Clark University. By the way, talking about it having a chair in Holocaust studies, so the first Israeli university, uh, was a whole, whole story also, there was a Holocaust survivor of the Vilna Ghetto, Dr. Mar- Dr. Mark Dvarzhetsky, a very prominent person, a fascinating individual, a, a, a medical doctor, and a whole story of how he survived and his writings and his research after the war. And he proposed to Hebrew University, to Tel Aviv University, and they both refused to have to endow a chair uh, of Holocaust studies in Israel, of all places, uh, to, to have refused it. And Barilan, uh, eventually uh, his efforts uh, bore fruit in Barilan, and he uh, held that first chair. Uh, so here you have the, uh, the first two universities that had a chair of Holocaust studies. Once um, we mentioned Worcester and all the historical context, there is actually some famous non-Jews who lived there as well. As well, among them were Robert Goddard, the uh, 
famous rocket scientist who pioneered uh, rocket research, Bob Cousy, the um, legendary basketball player for the Boston Celtics. And then to bring it down to contemporary life, Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, who last year year became uh, you know a legend beyond his time. So he was born in Brooklyn, uh, naturally, but he went to college in, in Worcester. Um, but if we just get to Boston for a few minutes, getting back to Boston, and this is the disclaimer, we're not going to cover everything about Boston, and there will be a part two, I promise. As long as there's a sponsorship for it, there will be a part two, so be in touch with me about that. Sometimes I feel like I say it too many times, this thing, uh, it's going to be part two, don't worry, I'm not going to cover everything. So recently on an episode, I said it about five times during that episode. Don't worry, there's going to be a part two. If I'm not going to mention everything. And what happens? I get an email from someone complaining that I didn't mention X, some personality that they wanted I, mention, I should mention. So I responded and I said, I, didn't I say like five times that there's going to be a part two? So the response I get was that this person should have been mentioned in part one. So that's Jews. You can never please them all. And that's, that's just the reality that we have to deal with. So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to mention a few personalities who are prominent in the history of the Jewish community of Boston. And I'm going to do a more comprehensive review uh, next time. I mentioned already Ramesh Zvulun Margolis, uh, Ramaz. So he, um, he, he was born in Kroz in Lithuania and he studied in Bialystok by the Einig Yamtev, Rabbi Yamtev Halprin, the Rav Bialystok, he gets smicha from him, Rabbi Yitzchak Khan Inspector, the Rav Kovna. He was actually a rabbi of a town that sounds familiar, but is it a different town? It's a town that was known as Swabotka, but it's not Slabotka. It's not anywhere near Kovna. I mean, it's, it's kind of near Kovna, but it's a couple hours away. You know, Slabotka, the real Slabotka is a suburb of Kovna, but Swabotka is near Suvalk. It's further south. It's, it's a bit northwest of Suvalk. And he was a small little shtetl, and he was the rabbi there for a bunch of years, and then he moves to the United States, and he, um, and he, uh, he becomes the rabbi in Boston in 1889. He's there for 17 years until 1906. Later on, he's, he's the rabbi in New York, famously, in the Jeshurun Synagogue in the East Side. He's the senior rabbi of the American rabbinate. He was one of the founders of the Goodest Rabbanim. He's one of the heads of Ritz, Rabbi Yerbeni in the early years. He had the smicha there, and a very, very prominent individual on the American rabbinate. Excuse me, someone whose story we should get to one day, but he is the main and prominent rabbi in Boston for over a decade at the turn of the century. There's another rabbi who overlapped him and another one, who's also an interesting individual, Reb Zalman Yaakov Friedermann. He was a son-in-law of the famous Yaakov Lifshitz, who was the um, secretary of Reb Khan Inspector in Kovna, and a, a legend in his own right, a writer and author of Zichron Yaakov, the history book about Russian Jewry in the 19th century. So this Reb Zalman Yaakov Friedman was officially the rabbi of what was called the Agudas Hakehilis, the United Community, United different bunch of different shuls that came together for many many years. Um, he first moved from. Lithuania to New York in the early 1890s, and then later in 1895 he moves to Boston. Uh, he had a pretty much a, a contentious relationship with both Ramaz and then with a later another Margolis who was not related to Ramaz, Reb Gavriel Zev, Revelvel, or Volf Margolis, who I'll get to in a minute. 
Um, so Reb Zalman Yaakov Friedman did not get along with either Margolis. It was especially bitter fighting with Rabbi Gavriel Margolis over Kashrus in Boston and political control. Um, so uh, there was a whole, a whole tension that existed in the community during the early decades of the uh, 20th century. Um, when Reb Zalman Yaakov Friedman passed away on a Sarabateves, so they said that he's such a litvak that everyone fasts on his yard site. Uh, the whole world, even the Hasidic Jews, fast on his yard site. I was uh, saying that they had, he was a bit of a Zionist also. He was very close with Rav Kook. He was very involved with the Agudas Rabbanim. And he, interestingly enough, Reb Zalman Yaakov Friedman worked together with the, very closely together with the Boston Rebbe, or Pinchas David Horowitz, the first Boston Rebbe, who I'll also get to, when they, and they founded the first Talmud Torah in Boston right after World War I. They founded it together. A big fighter for Orthodoxy. He wrote pamphlets that were anti the Reform Judaism and, 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 and promoting Orthodox Judaism during that uh, early time in America. He also helped uh, fund uh, an introduction to Zichron Yaakov, so the son of Yaakov Lifshitz, Nasanata Lifshitz, who's uh, put it, publishing it in Kovna. He thanks his brother in law for helping to get the funding together to publish Zichron Yaakov. So we have to thank him for having that fantastic history book as well. In 1919, I mentioned, Boston had Talmud Torahs, but they were, had interesting names. They were named after recent uh, rabbis, one of which who is still alive, but they thought he had passed away, so they named it after him. But they had a, a Talmud Torah, afternoon Talmud Torah, called Yeshivas Rabbi David Karliner, Yeshivas Rabbi Chaim Brisker, Yeshivas Rabbi Meir Simcha, the Arsameach, who was still alive. And it's ironic that the Yeshivas Rabbi Chaim Brisker, who was, was built by, it was an endeavor, which I said, was built by the Boston Rebbe, Rabbi Pinchas David Horowitz, but uh, he was promoting a Jewish education at the time. Now, I mentioned that this other rabbi, this other Margolis, was not related to Reb Ramaz, Reb Gavriel Zev Margolis, or Velvel Margolis. He was um, he uh, offic- uh, uh, called himself the chief rabbi of Boston for about four years, 1907 to 1911, when he moved to New York. He had previously been the rabbi of Grudna. He was the son-in-law of another Grudna uh, legend, Reb Nachumke of Haradna, which is Grudna in, in the Russian pronunciation, where they couldn't say the letter H, so H, Haradna became Grudna. You know, it's the, the Reb, Reb, uh, Alexander Ziskind of Haradna, the Yisrael Shavayda, is buried in the same Jewish cemetery as Reb Shimon Shkup of Grudna. So, if they were from two different towns, and how are they buried in the same cemetery? It's because Haradna and Grudna is the same place. Either way, so Reb Nachum of Haradna, who is the Rebbe of the Chavetz Chaim, actually. So, uh, so his son-in-law, Reb Wolf Margolis, or Vevel Margolis, so in, he was a very uh, fiery individual, a very uh, um, fiery a fighter. He was very powerful, a very strong leader and fighter for many causes, um, and a uh, very divisive figure. He, he always you know, tended to get into uh, uh, disputes with uh, with pretty much everyone. Um, when he was in Boston, he tried to create his own Kashra certification, which, which didn't work out. Um, and later on, he moved to New York. He founded the Knesset Harabanim, which was in order to compete with the Agudas Harabanim, which he, which he opposed. So before, way, way, decades before, there was the Hisachtus Harabanim, which competed with the Agudas Harabanim in the post-war era. You already had other opposition rabbinical bodies to compete with the Agudas Harabanim, the Knesset Harabanim. You know, an interesting uh, sidebar, Rabbi Aaron Hill Sirk was another Boston rabbi, and he passed away in 1909 when Ravel Margolis was still the rabbi in Boston. And he eulogized him, and he said 
that he a pity that he passed away in a non-Jewish hospital because a Jewish hospital would, would have taken care of him according to Allah. And this ultimately led to the establishment of the Beth Israel Hospital in 1916, which is a Jewish hospital in Boston, a prominent Jewish hospital in Boston. It was a, really a grassroots initiative of the community, lots of local funding, mainly done by women, by the way, Jewish women at local formed organizations to f- fundraise the, for this hospital. So it was a Boston Jewish community initiative, but it happens to be that it originally came from um, this Revelo Margolis's proposal. So that's interesting, even though he left and he wasn't even around when it was founded. He would soon come to see himself as the chief rabbi of America, but he's an interesting story. We'll hopefully get to him one day as well. Another uh, Jew who uh, passed through Boston just for a couple of years was Louis Brandeis. Uh, Brandeis was born in Louisville, Kentucky, to a family of Jews from Germany who came from, uh, from Bohemia, more Czechoslovakia, um, uh, Frankist Jews, from the uh, Frankist Jews of Bohemia, uh, fascinating yichas that he had there. He was actually close with his uncle, who was observant, an observant Jew, even though Brandeis himself and his family was not a brilliant individual and un, un, unmatched genius. Uh, he, he comes to Harvard and, and lives in Boston. And he got the highest GPA in the history of Harvard Law School. He leaves Boston a couple of years later, but he was later the first Jew to be on the Supreme Court after a long, long fight and debate. Um, and he became a great defender of the freedom of speech, the right to privacy, and other basic freedoms of American democracy, which we take for granted today, was only due to the fact that Brandeis defended it and wrote decisions for it in the Supreme Court. And he also embraced Zionism later on. And he's a, a whole story as well. One of the uh, prominent shuls in in, uh, in Boston, the base Medrashah Gadol, which was known as the Crawford Street Shul, was founded in 1913, a small house on Harold Street in Roxbury in Boston. Uh, um, in 1915, the cornerstone of the synagogue was placed at Crawford Street, and uh, and this congregation elected Louis Epstein as their first rabbi in 1918. Louis Epstein was a conservative rabbi. He was born in, in Anishok in, in Lithuania, and his father, uh, Rabbi Israel Epstein, came to the United States to to uh, to become a rabbi, so Louis Epstein stayed behind and studied in Slabatka. Later on, he graduated from Columbia and he got smicha from the JTS, from the Jewish Theological Seminary. He, got, he was ordained there, and the he uh, and he became very prominent in the conservative movement. He was involved in the Aguna question in the ni- in 1940. Um, so he becomes uh, he was a a uh, a very prominent individual in 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 the conservative Judaism in America at that time also of all the people and places mentioned on this episode none are none more than the Bostoner Hasidic dynasty definitely earns its own episode its own story which we will definitely have to get to one day even if we don't get to any of the other ones, I promise to get to the Bustoner Rebbes and the Bustoner Dynasty is something I definitely want. It's also one of my personal favorites. So I'm just going to mention some of the basics in the Boston context because I hope to uh, really get to it uh, one time uh, uh, because uh, it's a great, unbelievable story. The founder of the dynasty is, of course, Rebbe David Horowitz, who you know comes from Nicholsburg and, and Lelov on his mother's side. But he himself was born in Yerushalayim, in the old Yishuv. And his uncle, his mother's brother, was Reb Davidil of Lalov, the second Reb Davidil of Lalov, um, the one in Yerushalayim. And he tells him, when he's a young man in his 30s, living in Yerushalayim, he tells him to go to the United States 
and 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 lead the Jewish community, build Hasidus in the United States. Talking about it like in the in the early years, it's like 1910 or something like that. And, and he looks at his uncles if he's crazy. So what am I going to do? Why should I go there? What's going on? There's nothing there. And and um, and basically, he tells him, you know, this is my advice. And uh, if you ignore me, then you'll you'll get there someday somehow. Anyway, he makes some you know, some sort of vague cryptic uh, prediction like that. A couple of years later, the Kail Galitzi of the old Yishev, there's some sort of money dispute, which these disputes were endless, and uh, they sent Rav Pinchas David Harvitz as part of their delegation to into the arbitration of this dispute in Galicia, that he was one of the delegates from the Yerushalayim old Yishev Jewish community to represent the case of the, the Yerushalayim community by this dispute. And he gets stuck there, it's 1914, he gets stuck there during World War One. So the only boat leaving when he's able to get a boat ticket is going to the United States and landing in Boston. So he ends up coming to Boston, the Jewish community, and the Jewish community, the Hasidic community there, convinces him to stay, and they make him into a Rebbe. Now, he had not held any position of Rebbe in Yerushalayim. So he is becomes a Rebbe. So this is you know, one of, the, one of those instances in one of the earliest times, 1915, is really early on, and he becomes a Rebbe naturally in the American Jewish community, in the American framework, in the American context. This is completely an American dynasty. This is not a transfer from Europe. Um, his younger son, Rabbi Yitzchak Horovitz, who I was privileged to meet several times, was the first American-born rabbi. And he returns to Boston in the early 1940s and he reestablishes his father's court, a Hasidic court based around Kiruv of college students and Shabbatons and later the Rofa organization, a phenomenal organization of medical referrals and helping Jews from all over the world with medical issues and emergencies and, and, and doctors and hospitals. There's nothing conventional, conventional about the Boston Rebbe and the Boston Hasidic court or the Boston Hasidim within the greater context of the Hasidic movement. But there's such, you know, amazing leadership, and he has touched, he touched so many lives and of the, uh, the Jewish people, helped so many people. Shmuel Rozovsky, interestingly enough, the Panavizha Rosh Hashiva was assisted by Rofe and the Boston Rebbe when he had lung cancer and had to be in Boston for several months, uh, during the 1960s, uh, maybe 70s. Um, the Boston Rebbe, or Levi Yitzchak Horowitz, was the, is the only one that I know of, that it was on, served on the Moyetzis Gedele HaToyra of Agudas Yisrael in both Israel and the United States. That's because he later in life split his time uh, between the two countries, but in the opposite of convention. Again, everything's non-convention. Uh, opposite of convention in that, in that uh, court. He spends the summer, he spent the summer, spent the summer in Israel and the winter in Boston because he said, I'm not going to Israel for the weather and I'm not going to Boston uh, to be away from the hot weather. I'm in Boston to be there for the college students. I have to be there during the winter. Now, of course, there's no way to speak about Boston, uh, if not, without mentioning Rav Salvechik. Uh, he arrives in Boston in 1932 and throws himself into education, leadership, organizing, very charismatic, and right away begins building the community and Torah life. He and his wife, Tanya, established Maimonides Day School in 1937, and when it opened, Boston became only the third American city to have a Jewish day school. Um, he had, right away, when he became, he already had disputes with local rabbis who falsely accused him of profiting from kasha supervision, which he had to defend in court. There's a lot more to say about Rav Salvechik's Boston experiences, so we'll have to save that for next time too. But we'll mention another rabbi who was there at the same time, Rabbi Mordechai Savitsky, and his rabbinate in Boston. He was born in Lida, in in in, in Lita, 
and he studied in the Radin Yeshiva, which is right next to Lida, and a student of Rabbi Naftali Trup, and the Chavetz Chaim, a tremendous Talmud Chacham, he was close to Rabbi Chaim Eiser, and Rabbi Chana Chenech Aigish the Marcheshes, in Vilna. He authored works on the Yerushalmi and other subjects. He immigrated to the United States in 1939. He was appointed as a head of the rabbinical court in Besden, and he remained in that position until his passing 45 years later in 1985. Very strong-minded individual, very outspoken, very stringent, very, very... Extreme in certain ways, anti-Zionist, similar to the Ada Haredes in Yerushalayim. And naturally, these views and these positions and these personalities, uh, traits, brings them into conflict with Rav Salvechik, who, you know, quite the opposite in many ways. So the two didn't always see eye to eye on many issues, to put it mildly. Uh, so that's also an interesting piece of history. And once we talked about the Bostoner Hasidus, it wasn't the only Hasidic uh, dynasty in Boston, because a few years later, Meshulam Zusha Tversky. Meshulam Zusha Tversky, a third generation of the Tolna Hasidic dynasty, moves to Boston in 1929. Really, moves to Roxbury, kind of a suburb of Boston at that time. In 1929, he establishes a Tolna-based medrash. So Boston had at least two active Rebbes in the 1930s. And his son was Rabbi Isidore Tversky, also the Tolna Rebbe, and they made a local Boston shidduch with Rav Soloveitchik, and he becomes a professor of Jewish history at Harvard. And his, where the chair, Jewish philosophy, Jewish history, he, the chair that he holds had previously been held by, by Harry Wolfson, a fascinating individual. He had studied at the Slabatki Yeshiva, someone who was a, he immigrated to the United States in 1903 when he was 16 years old, after he had already studied at Slabatka, and later on he goes to Harvard, and he basically never left the building after that, except for a few short stints, and uh, he lived to research. He never married, he lived in the Harvard Library, he was the, started the chair of Jewish philosophy at Harvard, um, a fascinating individual, wrote books and papers and research and and uh, did that for his entire life. Um, there was many, many more. Um, there was the uh, Boston seems to have been qu- home to quite a few yeshivas, which didn't last long, which is an odd phenomenon. Uh, one of them was the Boston Rabbinical Seminary, um, founded by Rabbi Hyman. Rabbi was there for a period of time. Um, the uh, the uh, Ramakil Cutler actually studied there. Uh, so there was a yeshiva there for Dovid uh, Nayowitz, who pre- presently the national director of Torah Masora's day schools, also studied there. Um, there's, uh, they, they, they lasted for a, a couple of years in Boston, and and there was a, a, a short-lasted yeshiva named uh, Yeshiva Srebenu Chaim Alevi that Rav Soveitchik was involved in, also for a short period of time. There was a few yeshivas in Boston that didn't uh, last very long. Some other prominent Boston individuals, Bob Kraft, who's the owner of the New England Patriots, uh, comes from Boston. His father, Harry Kraft, was the chairman of another yeshiva that didn't last long in Chelsea, not in uh, Boston, in Massachusetts at least, uh, Yeshivas Ar Yisrael. He was the chairman of that yeshiva, his father, his father Harry Kraft. Um, interestingly enough, Rabbi Victor Miller was the Rosh Yeshiva of that yeshiva uh, in, in, in Chelsea. Um, and then another Boston prominent family was the Feuerstein family dynasty. They came from Hungary to Boston. Uh, Henry Feuerstein, and then later his son Samuel Feuerstein, and later his son Mo Feuerstein, and of course other branches, Aaron and others, uh, they made a fortune in textiles, and they stayed strictly orthodox, a very rare occurrence for the time. And, um, and they became one of the biggest philanthropic orthodox families of the 20th century. No exaggeration. 
uh, from local Boston causes to literally every Jewish cause around the world. Samuel Furstein fo- founded Maimonides together with Rav Soloveitchik. And he founded the, one of the founders of the Varat Sala during the war years. He's one of the founders of Torah Masorah together with the Peshagra Fava Mendelowitz, Mendelovich. He founds the Young Israel of Brookline and brings Irving Yitz Greenberg as the rabbi. Later on, his son Moses Feuerstein, Mo Feuerstein, was the head of the OU and stood at the forefront of many other Jewish causes, a, an amazingly uh, historic uh, Jewish family who is uh, uh, strongly Bostonian as well. Um, one last thing, because I can't hold this for part two, is, is, uh, is Red Auerbach. Red Auerbach, Arnold Jacob Auerbach, who's, who's uh, the legendary coach of the Boston Celtics, is born in Williamsburg uh, in Brooklyn, uh, one of, you know, to, to Jewish immigrants from Minsk in Belarus. Um, they owned a delicatessen in Brooklyn, uh, really typical of the Jewish immigrant generation. And then he becomes the greatest NBA coach of all time. He also, and talk about civil rights, he broke the color, bar- color barrier in the NBA in 1950. And he builds the greatest team in NBA history, Bob Cousy, Bill Russell, John Havlicek, and all the other Celtic legends of that time, the greatest dynasty in the history of sports. And I apologize to all the Yankee fans out there listening, but the Celtics under Red Auerbach were definitely the greatest dynasty in the history of sports winning nine out of ten championships, eight straight championships, and it's against formidable opponents at the time, against against Elgin Baylor and Jerry West of the Lakers. During the regular season, it's against Will Chamberlain. It, it's simply mind-boggling. He was a, a, a very popular figure. He would smoke cigars on the court. And, and then later on, as the GM of the Celtics, he s- sets up the Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, Larry Bird dynasty of the 1980s. He's responsible for that too. So that's part one about Worcester and Boston, which we'll hopefully get to part two. This is Yudi Geber of Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudatyudigeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.